We have been in uh, the book of 1 Corinthians, and we took a break last week. Josh talked to us about shame, and uh, he wanted us all to feel really bad about ourselves. Uh, no, actually, quite, quite contrary to that. Um, and, but we're back into the series in Corinthians today, and we're going to be finishing up chapter 1 and moving into chapter 2 uh, today. And this is part four of the series. I want to give you just a, a little reminder, since we've been away for a couple of weeks here, about where we've been. You remember that the people of Corinth, it was the boom town. There was all sorts of exciting things happening in Corinth. The moral failures in Corinth were very prevalent. And uh, there was a real problem within the church where there had started to be division among the church. Some were following fans of Apollo. Some were fans of Paul. Some were fans of Peter. And uh, they weren't together followers of Christ, which was the problem. And so Paul uh, systemically, kind of systematically went down and kind of uh, deconstructed their false thinking. And uh, the, the analogy that we used was about two boys, one a Yankees fan, one a Boston Red Sox fan in the same home. And they cared more about which team they were a fan of than the fact that they were brothers. And they took... Uh, more identity in what they had different than what they had in common. And what was happening in the church at that point was that they were each trying to outdo the other in order to gain the approval of Father when Father already loved them for one specific reason, because he died on a cross for them. Which is why that whole section ends up in chapter 1, verse 17, with Paul saying this. You can look at it with me. Verse 17 of chapter 1, it says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And so what he's saying is, at the core of it all, all we have is Christ. It doesn't matter if you're a fan of Apollos, a fan of Peter, none of that matters. The only thing that matters is that Christ died for us. And that's what we have in common. And that's where he ends. And he said, I don't want anything to distract from that. So the way we ended that last Corinthian, series, or the last Corinthian message was to say, if we build church on anything other than the cross of Christ, we have a problem because we're setting people up to see the wrong thing, you know, and to depend on the wrong thing and take identity in the wrong thing. And, Christ, and uh, Paul said, is Christ disunified? No, of course he's not. You know, he's unified. And if we're in the body of Christ, then we should be finding our identity together in him, not in what separates us from one another. So that was uh, verse 17 where he says he doesn't want to empty the, the cross of Christ uh, of its power. And then it picks up in verse 18. So that's where we're going to be today is in verse 18 of chapter 1. I'm going to have you stand with me in honor of God's word, please, as we read it. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? And where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. 
But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, As it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith may not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. You can have a seat. Please join me in prayer. God, we thank you for your word. It is profound. It is life-changing. It is life to us. Please illuminate it for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if any of you have watched Indiana Jones, but when I was a kid, I saw a few Indiana Jones movies, and there was this one scene in the Indiana Jones movie, and uh, Indiana was running all around the, the uh, town in somewhere in the Middle East looking for something, for someone, and there's crowds all over the place, and he's kind of running around, and then all of a sudden, he comes around a corner, and the crowd opens up. As the crowd opens up, there's this guy standing there. And he has a big sword, okay? And he has this, like, evil laugh. <laughs> okay? And then he takes his sword, and he's doing this with his sword, you know? And he's swinging his sword, and he's obviously after Indiana Jones. And Indiana Jones just looks at him for a while. Then he takes out his pistol, and he shoots him, and he turns around and goes back to what he was doing. <laughs> Not a wonderful story, but, you know, as a young kid. It was just great. You know, I was like, wow, look at that. That was impressive. And uh, in some ways, what's happening in this passage is that there's a smoking gun. Okay, what happens in this passage right here is that Paul takes all the philosophy and all the power struggles of all of them, and he says, there's one thing that cuts through all of it, that just ends the discussion, that stops the argument, that pulls the rug out of everything else. There's a smoking gun, and it's called the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And nothing else really matters. He starts off in a spectacular way by talking about how this cross divides us. How it divides us. How the cross of Christ divides us. You see, there was, he just got done talking about the division, of course, of the people who were fans of the different preachers. But then there was this other division, and while he had debunked the division of the the fans of the different uh, preachers, there was another division that was deeper, that was 
earlier than that division, and it was even sort of a God-ordained division between two groups of people. There were two groups of people in, in the world prior to this moment. Who, who were they? Jews and Gentiles, right. There were the people of God, and then there were the pagans. And the people of God were defined by who their great, 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 grandfather was, right? Who was who? Abraham. So those who were of the seed of Abraham were Jews, and they were called out to be the people of God. And just because of their national identity, because of the family they were born into, they were chosen to be God's birthright here on earth. And he gave them this thing through Moses called the law. And that law was an imprint of his character on the way they did life. That if they would live according to this law, it would reveal the character of God in this nation. And they were to be set apart, holy, different, sanctified from the rest of the world because they were to reveal the character of God. They were to glorify God just the way that Paul said earlier in this chapter that Corinth was called to be set apart. But they were called to be set apart as the people of God because of the law of Moses. Now, their job, in essence, was to be a priesthood to all the other nations of the world. People were to see God through the people of Israel, and if they wanted to access God, they were to access God through the people of Israel. And Israel was called to set themselves apart and be different. Now, what about this? I mean, think about it for a second. You're just born. All you do is be born, and you're a people of God, just by being born, you know? What, I didn't earn that. I didn't figure that out. I just have to be born. Of course, underneath of all of that, there is still a covenant that God required of the people, which is that they submit to him and live under that law and live according to it. We know that was an epic struggle for Israel and that they failed open many a time in uh, following God on this level. However, the dichotomy in our world was between the people of God and the pagans, and that division was a national line, the Jews and the Gentiles. But what Paul does right here in verse 18 is he redefines the whole game. And he says there's a whole new division. There are two kinds of people. There are those who are perishing and there are those who are being saved. What tense are those verbs? Perishing and being saved. Present tense, aren't they? They are present tense. Isn't that interesting? It doesn't say those who have perished or those who will perish. It says those who are perishing. They are in a process of perishing right now. And those who are being saved. Well, what does that mean? You know, they are in the process of being saved. It's not that they were saved. It's not that they're going to be saved. It's that they're being saved. What does that actually mean? I mean, Paul says it. This isn't us trying to spin theology. This is us asking a question about a verse of Scripture. What does it mean? being saved, perishing. There's these two kinds of people, and they're presently they're headed in different directions. One is headed toward perishing. One is headed toward salvation. What does that mean? What is going on? And what Paul says is he divides it based on their view of one thing. What is that one thing? The cross. Jesus' cross. How they view the cross. Let's read it. It says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. There are two kinds of people in this world. There is still the people of God, and there is still the pagan, unbelieving people. But that is no longer a national division. 
between the Jews and the Greeks. As a matter of fact, we are told very clearly in Scripture that there is now, therefore, neither Jew nor Greek. Okay, And Greek is exactly the people group who Paul's talking to at this point. There is now, therefore, neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, all the other divisions, they fade away. There is only one division, and it's how we view the cross that divides us. It's the only place where there's a true God-given biblical division anymore. It's our perspective on the cross. To some, the cross is foolishness. To others, the cross is the power of God. And that's it. It's the bottom line. Now, why would it be foolishness? Well, you know, when you think about those who are wise... What is it that, you know, when you have wisdom and you're thinking and you're figuring out your life and you're trying to get ahead and and all of that, you're sitting there working hard in your mind to self-improve. But the cross says what? The cross says, it's done. It's finished. I can't figure this out. He already figured it out. And it shortcuts human reasoning. It shortcuts human wisdom. And so those who are putting their effort into human wisdom, that seems trite and foolish, you know? You just, honestly, you're just going to say that the answer to all my problems are that some guy 2,000 years ago died on a cross? Really? That's it? You're going to simplify life down to this one little event, and that's all it's going to be. That is ridiculous. And honestly, if you think about it from human wisdom perspective, that is pretty ridiculous. You know, that's pretty trite to think that because some person died on a cross on a wooden tree, on a trash heap outside of Rome 2,000 years ago as a common criminal, that that should just be the answer to all of my problems. You know? Really? To the Jews, they were looking for the power of God. And so they're looking for a national Messiah, of course, who can reestablish this people of God, the nation of Israel, in their reign over Rome. And so what are they looking for? A national Messiah who has power. And so they're looking for signs and wonders, which Jesus did actually have. But there's another problem. There's a stumbling block, we're told in this passage. And the stumbling block is this this great Messiah who was supposed to get them back in charge of the world actually died as a common criminal at the hands of the Romans. That's a stumbling block. That doesn't look like power to them. It looks like weakness. So to the Jews, Jesus looks weak. The cross looks like weakness. To the Greeks who were wise, who understood the truth and the philosophy of the day, to them, the cross looks like a foolish, trivial, trite little thing. Okay? And that's their perspective. But then, there are those who are in the process of being saved by the power of the cross. And to them, it looks powerful. And that's the division. So, given that division, Paul walks the Corinthians, into verse 19, which is a quotation from Isaiah. He says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. This is a a quote from Isaiah chapter 26. And Isaiah chapter 26 is this really interesting part of Isaiah. What's going on is, is that Isaiah is deconstructing, again, the philosophy of the day. Except instead of doing it with Greeks, he's doing it with the people of God in Israel when they're about to go into captivity. And they're about to go into captivity. And what he's telling them over and over again is he says, listen, you are trying to match wits with God. You're trying to outsmart God. Listen, that never turns out well for people. Okay, he said that you are to live a certain way. 
And we are choosing not to live that way. And when we're choosing not to live that way, guess what? That means we think we're smarter than God. And he's saying that never works out well. So I want to take you to that passage, to, to Isaiah chapter 26. And I want to read these two verses right in the middle of it, starting in verse 13. Of, I'm sorry, Isaiah 29. Did I say 26? Isaiah 29. The Lord says, These people come near to me with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. Therefore, once more, I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of the wise will perish and the intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. See, here's what's going on. There is a people who were following God with their mouth. They had an identity as the people of God, but of course, underneath of it, their hearts were not drawn close to Him. God does this amazing thing where He says He, he actually structures the world. And he structures humanity in such a way that it is impossible to know God through human wisdom. Did you know that? That human knowledge cannot lead us to a relationship with God. It cannot lead us to understanding God. Do you realize that? In Romans chapter 1, we are actually told that there is enough revealed about God that we can see him in creation. So we can, we can testify to the fact that, that because of what's around us, that there is a God. You know, and if we're really, if you take all the human knowledge and all the human wisdom, and if people are very, very honest with themselves, they can find through creation that there is actually a God. But what that does not do is put us into a relationship where we actually know God. See, from the very, very beginning, God designed it that our knowledge and our wisdom and our understanding doesn't lead us to a personal knowledge of God. Let me explain how we know that. I'm going to turn to Genesis now, okay? And if you have your scriptures, I would urge you to turn to Genesis with me. Chapter 2, verse 8. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of what? The, of what of the good and evil? Knowledge of good and evil. So there was the tree of life and there was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There were two trees in the garden, okay? Then in verse 16 of chapter 2, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat, any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. You know what die means? To perish. Remember, there are two kinds of people. Those who are being saved and those who are perishing. Okay. Now, if you move over to verse Four of chapter 3 in Genesis, this is where Satan does something very tricky. Of course, he pins Eve. Had Eve heard the command from God? No. Who had heard the command from God? 
Adam had heard the command from God, which he relayed to his wife. So naturally, if you're going to find someone who's vulnerable, who's the one to find? The one who didn't hear it right from the mouth of God, right? So what is Satan attacking? He's attacking the trust factor. And he goes after Eve, and he says right here in verse 4, you will not surely die. You will not surely die. And what is he saying? He says, you don't know if you'll die, do you? Because what you know is that Adam said that God said that you would die. You know? Well, first of all, how do you know you can trust Adam? And secondly, how do you know that you can trust God? You don't actually know this is a matter of trust, not a matter of knowledge. So the reason you're not eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is because you're trusting Adam and you're trusting God. Why not stop trusting and start knowing? Because if you know for yourself, then they don't have to tell you what to do. You can figure it out yourself. So what does it say here in verse 6? It says, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, that's the flesh, and it was pleasing to the eye, that's the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. The lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life are all there. It looks good. It tastes good. And you know what? It's going to make me wise. Now, what if God is trying to pull a fast one on me? What if Satan's right here? What if the serpent is right? That God just doesn't want me to become like him. You know? Maybe he's right. The only way I'll actually know is if I take from the tree and gain the knowledge, and have the perspective, and then I'll know whether I can trust God or not. (laughs) Which is funny, because trust only exists in a lack of knowledge, not with full disclosure. Did you know that? If you know everything there is to know, then there's nothing to trust. You already know it. Trust happens when you don't know something, but you choose to trust anyway. I don't know how many times I've had people say to me, oh man, I wish I had known that. I would have trusted if I had known that, but I just didn't know. (laughs) What? That's not trust if you know. That means you're trusting yourself and your own knowledge. It doesn't mean you're trusting another person. It's when you don't know the information, but you choose to rely anyway. That's what trust is. And here in this situation, there were two two trees that were put in the garden. One of them was the tree of life. Guess what that gives? Eternal life. Wonderful. And then there's the other one, the knowledge of good and evil. And what does that give? It gives death. That's true. What else does it give? Knowledge. Truly gives knowledge, doesn't it? It really does. I mean, Satan wasn't lying about that part. Look down in chapter 3, down in verse 22. Let's hear God's perspective about it. In verse 22, And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. God must have been jealous because now we knew what he knew, huh? (laughs) Of course, God isn't jealous. God's not intimidated by us. But the problem is, is that we had knowledge on our own, which meant that we were going to become self-dependent, which meant we were in bad shape because we weren't created to be self-dependent. And once we became self-dependent, 
it was going to be a very bad scene. And so he removes us from the garden so that we can't eat from the tree of life and live eternally in the state that we shouldn't be in. He has to allow us to begin the process of perishing so that we can be saved. Okay? And so what's happening in this scene is, again, there's a tree of knowledge in which if I gain this wisdom, I can depend on myself. I don't need God to tell me what's right and wrong anymore. I can figure out what's right and wrong now. And over here, I have the tree of life, which has naivety to it. Okay? And yet what it has in it is trust. And if I trust God and I don't eat from this tree of knowledge, then here I am in the Garden of Eden in wonderful relationship with God, knowing Him, doing everything I'm called to do, experiencing eternal life, having everything just perfect because I'm in a position of trust with God. And yet over here, I can choose to, instead of trusting Him, gain my own knowledge. And when I do, I can stand on my own two feet and it will surely lead me to death and separation from God. Now, this is why from the very beginning, human knowledge and human wisdom does not lead us to relationship with God. No matter how much we know and no matter how much we understand, it doesn't help us know God more. Knowledge doesn't lead to knowing God. You know what does? Posture. Posture leads to knowing God. God will not be known outside of a relationship. He will only be known inside of a relationship. He refuses to be a religious textbook who's understood like a book. He refuses. The only way that God will be known is in a relationship. And in that relationship, there is a certain posture that we must have in order to access God. It's a posture of trust, a posture of humility, a posture of dependence, a posture of worship. Because when God designed us, he didn't design us just as a little project on the side. He designed us as his kids, and he loves us. And in order for us to access him, we have to access him as his kids who are dependent on him. And so when we get all wise, and when we get all smart, and we figure all this out, and we figure all this out, and we get it all licked, we would think that maybe that would help us know God more, but it doesn't. What it has a tendency to do is help us depend on ourselves more instead of depend on God, and then instead of growing in humility and submission to God, and therefore knowing Him in a wonderful relationship, what ends up happening is we grow arrogant and independent, and self-reliant, and our posture gets messed up, and the relationship gets messed up, and then all of our information gets skewed because we're missing the one thing we really do need, which is the relationship with God. This is why in verse 26 of Corinthians, and we're back to Corinthians, in verse 26, Paul says this, Brothers, Think of what you were when you think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. If Newsweek or Time did an article, you know, like I think it's People Magazine does a, a, an article every year about like the hundred most beautiful people in the world, and uh, and like there's like Business Week does like the hundred most successful people in the world and, and the wealthiest people in the world. I don't, I haven't seen one. Maybe there is one that I'm not aware of about the top 100 most intelligent people in the world, the wisest people in the world, the most intelligent ones. But if they did make that list, how many of those people do you think would be believers? True believers. The most intelligent people in the world. You would think that if you just get smart enough, you'd finally get smart enough to depend on God. 
But it's not the way it works. Because human wisdom doesn't lead you to a posture of dependence on God any more than human wealth leads us to a posture of dependence on God. And what does Jesus say about the young rich ruler? It's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than for a camel to enter through the eye of a needle. It's harder for the beautiful people, for the successful people, for the wealthy people, for the wise people, for the intelligent people to enter into the relationship with God. Why is that? Because in this world, that stuff just kind of works, doesn't it? I mean, if you have the looks and if you have the popularity and if you have the political sway and if you have the resources and if you have the intelligence, you can get ahead if you just apply yourself enough. And so we learn to be independent and self-reliant. And that's why if you look at the top 100 uh, list of most intelligent people in this world, chances are they won't be applauded for their dependence on God, which is true wisdom. So given all of this, there's this moment that Paul really feels the need to talk about. He brings them back to the center of what it's all about. And it's in verse 20. So if you look at verse 20, this is the core of the text. Where is the wise man? And where is the scholar? The word scholar here uh, would more appropriately be translated as teacher. So this is, that's a Jewish term. There is no Greek term that that fits in. That, that's uh, referring specifically to Jews. So there's, where's the wise man? Who's the person who understands what's going on? Then where's the scholar? Then where's the philosopher of this age? The philosopher is the Greek thing. So he's like, there's wise men. There's the Jewish wise men who are the teachers of the law. And then there's the philosophers of the age. And they're the Greek wise men. And he said, where are they? And then he says this. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And you know what he's saying? This is, this is what he's saying. This is the moment where, where, uh, where uh, Indiana Jones pulls out the pistol, you know? And there's a guy with a sword, and he looks like he's very skilled, and he's very intimidating, and he's very scary, but you never bring a sword to a gunfight, you know? And what's happening is, is Paul's saying... You guys are so wise. You guys are brilliant. It's amazing. Look at you. Look at the wise men, the teachers of the law. Look at how much you know about the scriptures. Oh my goodness. Look at how well you can nuance philosophy. And look at all the insight and all the wisdom you have. And has not God made foolish your wisdom? Has not God made absolute foolish your wisdom? See, when I was a kid, uh, there was this, when we would play sports, there was always these moments where guys would kind of be mocking each other, you know, one guy would put a move on another guy, and then he'd kind of look at him like, yeah, did you see what I just did to you? And there was one ultimate comeback for all the other things. They'd just point at the scoreboard. Whoever was winning would point at the scoreboard. And when you point at the scoreboard, it doesn't matter, you know, just look at the scoreboard. And what's happening in this passage is there is all sorts of brilliant people who think this, and there's all sorts of people who know the scriptures and think this. And you know what Paul points toward? Toward the cross. And he says, look at the cross. I decided when I came to you that I was not going to come with wisdom or with eloquent speech. I was going to come to you with a simple message of Christ and Him crucified. See, this is actually where the power of God is revealed. This is where it gets real. In verse 30, we are told it is because of Him that we are in Christ Jesus. And those of us 
who are truly believing that Jesus is enough for our holiness and our righteousness and our redemption. Those of us who are not depending on our wisdom, who are not trying to be smart, those of us who are not trying to be beautiful, those of us who are not trying to be successful, those of us who are not trying to self-improve, but are leaning into the message of the cross, we are finding, this is what we are finding, that the cross of Christ is the power of God. You know how I'm finding that? Because I'm seeing that it's transforming human lives. Namely, mine. Those who are being saved are those who are realizing that this cross of Christ, while it may seem like a trite answer for all of the world's problems, where it may seem like actually a person got weak instead of strong, and so it seems like weakness. What I'm finding is, if I will just listen to Jesus the way that Adam and Eve initially listened to him in the garden, if I will just listen to him, and he says, all I need is the cross of Christ, if I will listen to him and put all of my hope and put all of myself and all of, of my trust in this cross of Christ, I will find something. I will find that it will change my life. And that all the wisdom of this age that tells me how to self-improve, and that all the special theologies that are taught from all the sacred scriptures, all of it can fall short of one smoking gun. A man who walked on this earth 2,000 years ago and died on a cross. And then he rose from the dead. And that every person who seems to really trust that moment as all they need in their life, their lives actually change. So what happens when all the wise men can't change their lives? What happens when all the teachers of the law can't actually change the world? But then you watch a couple fishermen who trust a crucified Christ and you see them change the globe forever. What do you do with that? There's a good reason for Paul to point to the scoreboard at this moment and to say to Plato and to say to Aristotle, to say to Socrates, to say to the teachers of the law and the high priests, to say to them, look, I don't know what to tell you. I could argue with you and we could talk theology and we could talk philosophy and God has plenty to say about all of that, but that's not going to help because I'm not going to sit here and have a sword fight with you when there's already a smoking gun. It's already been done. And so Paul says he won't come with eloquence or with superior wisdom. You know, there was this thing in, in their day called sophistry. And sophistry was the, the entertainment of the Greek world. And the entertainment of the Greek world would be these guys who would get up and they'd sit here and they'd talk. And they were eloquent speakers with great wisdom. And they would wax eloquently about philosophy and about truth. And people would stand in wonder at, at these lectures, you know. And they would just love it. It was the entertainment of the day. And the heroes of their day, instead of being sports figures or political figures or whatever, the heroes of their day were those who could speak with great wisdom and great eloquence. And Paul went and hung out with these people right before he came to Corinth. You remember where he was before he came to Corinth? It was that place that we said is just like Boston? Athens. Yeah, yeah. It's where MIT was. It's where Harvard was. You know, it, it, it was that place. And there was this place in the middle of Athens called Mars Hill. And Mars Hill is where all the philosophers hung out. And Paul goes and he speaks, right before coming to Corinth, he goes and he speaks at Mars Hill. And do you know 
that in all of Scripture, there is not one better picture of an eloquent speech given evangelistically than this moment. I mean, I will tell you that if you scour the Scriptures and if you watch every teaching of Paul, there is never a moment where Paul or Peter or any of the other apostles speak with such profound wisdom about God than this speech in Athens. Paul just does this masterful job of weaving in the cultural icons around them. He takes this memorial, this altar to an unknown God, and he shows them, this is actually Yahweh. He's the creator God, and he doesn't submit to all of these other gods. And he weaves this beautiful philosophy. And at the end of it, he is coolly dismissed. And there's a couple people who have faith. No one gets mad. No one throws him out of the synagogue like happens everywhere else. He's just coolly dismissed. And then he has a long walk from Athens down to Corinth. And I think that what happened is in Paul's mind, as he's walking from Athens down to Corinth, he's got to be saying to himself, I don't get it. Man, I was on fire. Like, did you hear that speech, God? Like, the wisdom in that speech was unbelievable. I mean, the way that we found their language and spoke in their language, the way we, we brought that all around to help them understand it, it was right there in front of them. It was just dangling on the tree. Why didn't they just, just take and eat? You know, it was right there. There's two words that Paul didn't mention in that whole speech. Two words that he mentions in most of his other speeches and he didn't mention in that speech to Athens. You know what they were? Christ and crucified. He never mentioned them. Brilliant speech. Beautiful wisdom and eloquence. And he forgot two words. Christ and crucified. And by the time he gets down to Corinth, he's shaking in his boots because he's realizing that these people don't care in Greece. That no, no matter how much he brings the heat, no matter how wise he is, they don't really seem to care. And what's more is, is he's shaking in his boots because he realizes that this cross requires submission and that they don't want to submit. And so he says that I came to you with fear and trembling, but I came with a commitment that I would not come with superior wisdom or superior knowledge. I would not come with eloquent speech. I would not play the games of this world. What I will do is I will come and say something very simple, that there was a man who died on a cross. It was God incarnate. He died on a cross and he rose from the dead. And he says that if you will trust him, your life can change. That's it. Okay? Anything else you want to add to it? Any bells and whistles? Forget it. If you want me to keep up with Apollos teaching all tricky, forget it. If you want me to keep up with the sophistry of the day and entertain you, forget it. I'm telling you one thing. Jesus died on a cross for your sins and you either depend on him or you don't. And that's up to you, but I'm not going to sugarcoat it for you because this is a bit of a bitter pill to swallow. You are not God and your knowledge will not get you to God. There is one thing that will get you to God and it is Christ and him crucified and I promise you that if you bet your life on that moment your life will change and if you bet it on anything else you will perish and that's the message of Paul when he shows up to Corinth it's a big difference from a few weeks before when he spoke in Athens a major major difference there's a temptation in any church leader that I know of to try to grow a church by just about any means possible 
You know, is it when, when you go to a pastor's conference or something, that one of the first questions they ask, oh, what church are you a part of? Okay, how many people attend? You know, this is the big question in pastors. And, you know, anyone who wants to be successful in whatever it is they do, you know, they want to apply themselves and go after it. Paul was an evangelist, you know? He certainly wanted to see the church grow and the kingdom grow. And he wanted to do anything he could. As a matter of fact, he says, I'll be all things to all people so that by all means anyone to come to Christ, like whatever it takes, you know? On one hand, that's what Paul's saying. But see, there's this other thing. And the other thing is that Paul realizes that if he goes and he brings wisdom and he brings eloquence and he, he builds just the right church program or he does just the right thing that he needs to do. You know, there's these books out here you know, I had to study in college. They're incredible telling you about how to dr- grow your church. They largely have to do with kind of the style of your bathrooms and how much spacing there is between the pews in your church and, you know, the lighting and all of those things because when people come in, they need to feel welcomed and all of that. And of course, there's wisdom in all of that, isn't there? That people feel a certain way and there's a certain ambiance when they come into a, a room and, and if you raise the lights at just the right time, people are like, oh, it's nice. And when the lights come down, it brings more of an intimate atmosphere. And, you know, there's all sorts of wisdom around how to do church and all of that stuff. But underneath of all of that, see, what happens is, is that, that if, if we attract people to the church because we have good programs or because we have, you know, we speak in just the right way or do any of those things, what are people attaching to at the end? We just sold them church, but we didn't get them submitted to Christ and we didn't build the kingdom of God. You know, coming to Christ is hard. It's a cross. It's not easy. And when people walk into church, they have to deal with other people you know, and that's tough, and they have to deal with institutions that often don't have a whole lot of money, you know, and they don't have all sorts of stuff working, and in order to connect and submit to Christ, I don't get things the way I want them, the whole point is, is that I trust, and I come here, and I, and I submit to him, and I live my life the way I'm supposed to, not because it works for me, but because he's God, not because I understand it, and it makes sense to me, that's the knowledge of good and evil, I do it because I want to eat from the tree of life, and he told me, this is the one I'm supposed to eat from. And so the only thing I have to trust anymore is that I know I'm a failure and I know I'm a sinner and I could try to self-improve and I could try to grow a church and I could try to be wise and I could try to do all of that. But the only thing I actually get is Jesus on a cross and then resurrected and him telling me to trust him. And when I do, if I trust him, apparently my life actually changes. And when we do, this is why Paul says this. This is what he says. Instead of coming to you with wisdom or eloquence, I came to you with a demonstration of the power of the Spirit. A demonstration of the power of the Spirit. You know what that is? The demonstration of the power of the Spirit? Some people have thought that meant that he came with signs and wonders. And he actually did. I mean, Paul came to Corinth and he did a lot of great stuff there. But that's definitely not what Paul means in this passage. He's not confirming the message because he did signs and wonders. As a matter of fact, that would be very counterproductive because you remember what he said Jews seek after? Signs, you know? And there, there were Jews there. He was in the synagogue, remember? That's where he started. And so he said the Greeks seek wisdom, the Jews seek signs, but we preach, preach Christ and him cruci- crucified. We didn't come with the wisdom. We don't come with the signs and wonders. We come with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. And you know what the Spirit produces, right? 
Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. That's what the Holy Spirit produces. And the power of God among us is when someone trusts their life to Christ and Him crucified and He begins to change their life and produce His fruits in their life. And what Paul's saying is, we came with a simple message and people's lives are changing. And you can sit here and tell me all about your philosophy and you can tell me all about your details of the law, but I'm just going to tell you one thing. Look at those who trust the cross of Christ with their lives and watch what happens. That's a demonstration of the power of God. And it's the smoking gun you know that's what it is it's a beautiful beautiful thing i have more but we're gonna end there (laughs) join me in prayer